I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph and Mitsubishi Motors. The second week of the Rugby World Cup 2019 is now in the history books and what a weekend it was for hosts Japan. They followed up their 2015 scalp of South Africa with a win over Ireland in Tokyo. The result dominated both the front and back pages in Japan and we'll be speaking to Tokyo-based journalist Oliver Trenchard about what the significance of this win has been for the hosts. Wales held off a second-half fight back from Australia to seize control of Pool D in what was arguably, well, possibly one of the best games of the competition so far. We'll be speaking to the Wales legend Scott Quinnell about the reaction in Wales to their nail-biting win. Michael Checker, as you might imagine, he wasn't too happy with the officiating in the Wales-Australia game. Refereeing has come in for some major criticism so far in this year's tournament, and World Rugby themselves have been forced to release a statement condemning the standard of officiating in their own competition. The former international referee Jonathan Kaplan will be joining us to offer his insights into this topic. Plus, we'll be looking ahead to England's first major test against Argentina next week, as well as a brand new format of the game set to launch in London in just a few weeks' time. And to help me get through all of this is the former Fiji Sevens gold medal winning coach and friend of the show, Ben Ryan. Hello, Ben. Hey, Brian. How you doing? Not bad. Good. Japan 19, Ireland 12. I wrote on social media about this and just said that the best thing about it was that it didn't contain any element of luck. No, it was it's... a very deserved win. And... Um, well, what do you make of it? Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. It wasn't like four years ago in Brighton. This was almost every facet of play. They played wonderful brand of rugby. Um, and, you know, we've all been going on about how the game is driving towards more power and size. And then you've got a player like Nagari at scrum half who was just breathtakingly brilliant, got the ball away, was navigating his forwards into the right places. I thought they played a brilliant brand of rugby. It was just great. Well, you've got a couple of players, a hooker. Um, yeah. Ori, I mean, he and um, the number 14. I mean, the, 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 his get-out-of-jail turn in his own dead ball area, 
and then counterattack down the field was one of the highlights of the World Cup for yeah. me. They, they just play with ambition, you know, and, and I think with this overly structured game that a few of the teams are playing, Jamie Joseph's got them playing an all-court game and, and you know, it shows that you play far, fast-paced, you have highly skilled players. I thought they're tackling as well. If it, you know, we sometimes talk about this a bit about kids watching the game and having a look at how their, their, their stars are doing it. But one, every man in the Japanese side technically was brilliant tackles. Really. And, they, and not in the way that's dirigeur with people bashing chest up, you know, getting over the gain line, hitting people behind the gain line, tackling them first man always round the leg so he can't go anywhere else. And then a pair of hands over the top. And whether or not they actually turned the ball over, which the majority of times they didn't, just managed to slow the ball up. And it became completely sclerotic for the Irish. It did. I, I mean, you're right. I mean, that, that kind of talk about it when you're, I was a PE teacher teaching year sevens rugby. And it's like cheek to cheek, you know, and you wrap your arms around and you, and you lock them and you pull them down. And I think the Japanese, because of their need to make sure they get all their technical aspects correct, they've spent a lot of time on their foundations and their catch, pass and tackle is as good as anybody else in the competition. And I think that got, was one of the major reasons that they got that victory at the weekend. Do you think, to any, I mean, Joe Schmidt will never admit this and neither will the Irish players. And indeed, he said beforehand that they weren't underestimating Japan. But do you think there was an element of that or you think you just came unstuck? It's a real, it's a, it's a str- you know, their form was not great coming in and then they had that Great game against Scotland, who who also I think were well, probably undercooked with those two Georgian warm up games. Um, everybody thought Conor Murray then was back to his best. Um, they rested Johnny Sexton. Con- Conor Murray went back to his worst against Japan, and Sexton wasn't there. And they ran out of options, and Japan just suffocated them. Um, I love what Joe Schmidt does. I think off the field as a coach, I think he's he's brilliant, and the the stall he sets out. But they are very prescriptive, and if they don't get on the front foot, um, and they don't get away from first phase startup plays, um, then they can they can kind of run themselves into 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 you know going backwards and sideways and running out of options that's what happened and suddenly you know Ireland do not look like they're going to be one of those that are going to be in the latter stages of the tournament well the three things uh, that take away nearly everything from the Ireland team if you don't give them line outs 50% of their tries come from line outs mm. and in the first 20 minutes Sam Warburton as a pundit mentioned this you know they had seven line outs did really well after that Japan stopped kicking the ball off the field and funnily enough, the attacking platforms from that set piece weren't there. If you don't give penalties away at the breakdown and you manage to stifle the, the relatively limited number of runners they've got, then they don't seem to be able to change. And, I mean, Johnny Sexton said afterwards that the defeat can be a blessing in disguise for the Irish, but I'm not sure what he means by that. Do you, do you, can you discern... A, a, a chink of light for for them. Well, I, know, I mean, you obviously lose from you know you learn a lot from from your losses, but this wasn't a loss that they wanted, and it's put off their planning now. And you know, talking about Johnny Sexton, he he's massive for them. And if their nine and ten aren't working, then I don't think they're going to get to these the semi-finals. And Johnny Sexton um, didn't play in that game, but you know, he doesn't look fit. And I think with Conor O'Shea, they've suddenly hit the uh, the biggest moment of the World Cup for them coming up in these knockout games. And they've got halfbacks that have neither got form or fitness. And I think that's a big worry for them. And the other thing for them is you know, going forward, if just for a second we assume they were to get out of the pool, it means the, the final two games, which could have been a chance to mix and match, are, you know, that's not there. They'll have to play nearly the full strength 15, mm. which means going forward, you've got... 
like England, but England have so far kept their you know their powder dry in that sense. You've got two final pool games and then potentially three knockout games, all going to be full tilt, all with nearly a first choice starting 15 or 23. And bearing in mind the relative lack of depth where England seem to have you know a great deal of depth and yes. have shown that with whatever combinations they have, Ireland slightly less so, so that's going to put strain on them as well. I think, yeah, I, there's not a positive for them losing this game against Japan. Um, it's put them on the back foot and it's contributed to people like you and me saying that Ireland are now looking less likely to be able to get deep into this tournament and um, yeah you know great for Japan um, but it's what a fascinating group I mean it's mm. still we still have no idea what's going to happen well as we are speaking Scotland are playing there I think they're the well up at the moment against Samoa but they also need to uh, play almost uh, their best 15 you know, in their remaining games to make sure they have a chance of getting out and of course the same Going forward for them, so anyone who takes them in the quarterfinal will be very happy. Yeah, and they, they've got to get two. To, they've got to get remaining five points out of each of these games, and against Japan, that's going to be very tough. Just even to 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 get a win against the Japanese, who are, who who are looking great and on their day, I think can have a crack at anybody. So, no, I mean we talked about this off off air. There's there's, there's just been this constant drama. It's been brilliant, and uh, I hope it may con- long continue. Well, the Japan win over Ireland, dominated the front and back pages in and around these shows. I could only imagine what it was like uh, over there in Japan. But why don't we find out? Because we're now going to speak to Oliver Trenchard, who's a Tokyo-based journalist. Hello, Oliver. Hi there. How would you compare the public perception of the World Cup before and after this game in Japan? Well, it's just done so many things for awareness of rugby in Japan, that victory at the weekend. Um, I mean, you flick on the TV this morning and it's the first thing you see on television. Um, It's about two hours analysis dedicated to the game when rugby got about, you know, 10, 15 minutes of airtime before the Rugby World Cup this year. And um, I mean, to look at the back page of the newspapers here um, on Sunday after the game was just, you know, washed with the red and white stripes of the brave blossoms. And the newspapers here have a huge, huge circulation. So to get on the front page of the newspapers is huge. And I think it will do massive things for Japanese rugby as we move towards the final two games against Samoa and Scotland in the next two weeks. You're just, just talking about them. Is there now an expectation in Japan that they will defeat Scotland and possibly uh, top the pool? Or are they still very circumspect about it? Well, I think there has to be that expectation now they've uh, defeated the favourites in Ireland to top Pool A. Um, and, I mean, on the basis of Scotland's performance against Ireland in the opening weekend, you certainly wouldn't bet against the Brave Blossoms to pull off another scalp against a Tier 1 nation. Um, and let's forget the Brave Blossoms have theoretically overtaken Scotland in the world rankings um, just after the game. So there's definitely a level of expectation. Um, there was certainly that expectation going into the Russia game on the opening weekend. Um, and I think the pressure was off somewhat for the Ireland game in Shizuoka this weekend, which allowed Japan to play some more free-flowing rugby, go through the phases, something which they were unable to do against Russia on the opening weekend. They struggled under the high ball. Um, and so I think Samoa and Scotland again, They've got two wins under their belt now. Um, the pressure is off somewhat, and I think we can expect more of the same, a similar level of performance that we uh, saw against Ireland. If they do that, then there's no question that they'll uh, make it past tomorrow at least um, and could give Scotland a very good run for their money on October 13th. 
Hey Oliver, Ben Ryan here. Um, I've just a couple of things really. It's obvious that they're very well coached, and you know their foundation skills are great. And Jamie Joseph is doing you know a brilliant job. If you dig a little bit deeper, would you say some of this success is also down to the, the frameworks in place at home, as far as Super Rugby franchise with the Sunwolves, and also the top league? Um, it looks like there's been increased investment and quality coming into that league. Do you think that's that's seriously on the rise as a domestic league and improving what's happening? locally yeah to a certain extent the um, the top league in the super rugby has worked wonders in the last two years since some walls were created the uh, Japanese super rugby team it's definitely been beneficial of course for the the brave blossom players who featured for the sun walls to get some game time in super rugby and really test themselves against the uh, the southern hemisphere league competition and the players which um, gives them in uh, good competition to test themselves against the likes of South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and even the Northern Hemisphere nations like they did against Ireland last weekend. And then we look at the top league, and of course there's a debate against whether foreign players coming to the league, how would it impact the local Japanese players? Would it hinder them getting game time, or would it even bring them on that another level, playing with those foreign players alongside them, training with them every day, getting that experience with them? Um, so it's, it's a double-edged sword, I'd say, in terms of the top league, and that's going to go under some... Um, rejuvenation and some restructuring in the next couple of years to come as we um, see the effects of the 2019 Rugby World Cup. But certainly the Sunwolves have uh, helped. And Tony Brown and Jamie Joseph have been the uh, the foundation of the coaching staff of the Sunwolves in the past two years. So it's great to have almost uh, an extension of the Japan national team playing in Super Rugby um, for the last two years continuously and getting those combinations going especially when we look in the backs um, in midfield, you've got Lafayette and Nakamura at 12 and 13 respectively who have played for a year and a half now for the Sunwolves um, and now for the Japan national team so um, there's no doubt in my mind that's been a benefit to the Japan national team Oliver, I mean it's not uh, as if rugby is a new sport in Japan, it's been there quite a long time and yet it's never managed to make the leap into very mainstream consciousness what do you think it will take to push that extra little bit, it's going to take a little bit more than you know these tremendous successes, though they are every four years. What 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 would they need? Yeah, you're right. I mean, we can't just rely on rugby world cups and the successes that um, they bring to bring on the level and awareness of Japanese rugby here domestically. I think there needs to be uh, a slight restructure of the Japanese top league competition. Um, We've obviously got quite a lot of players coming here from the Southern Hemisphere after the Rugby World Cup. Um, quite a lot of All Blacks, like a Kieran Reid, for example, and a couple of Wallabies as well. Um, but in terms of getting people watching those games, there's not a lot of broadcast deals that have been made with other Asian markets or even Southern Hemisphere countries like South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, where there are a lot of foreign talents applying their trade here in the top league. Um, so I think the top league really needs to establish itself as the number one league in Asia. Um, whether that be commercially or broadcast and expanding new broadcast deals into the rest of Asia and establishing themselves as number one in the market. Um, but, I mean, attendances, if you talk about people coming to the grounds to watch top league action week in, week out, it has dwindled slightly after initial peak after 2015. Um, I'm sure that will increase after 2019. But then we look to the Sunwolves and the fact that they're being cut from Super Rugby in um, 2020 so next season will be their last season in Super Rugby which is a great shame and of course you know we'll have it adverse effects on the Japan national team going forward so 
it's really yet to be seen how the future of the Sun Wolves will be, whether it's part of a new uh, rival competition for Super Rugby in the Southern Hemisphere, um, or you know whether that's incorporated into an expanded top league system involving Korean teams and maybe a Singapore team and maybe Malaysia team and really capitalising on the growth of Rugby World Cup in Asia as a whole. Um, that would be really fantastic to see to Japan to kind of take that whole position in Asia um, and be the leader for the Asian market just so we make sure that you know, this Rugby World Cup isn't just for the development of Japan, but it's for Asian rugby as a whole. Oliver, we're going to have to leave it there, but uh, you enjoy the rest of the tournament. I'm sure you will in what, uh, even from here, we could tell is a febrile atmosphere. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you. Ben, uh, I was over in Singapore, albeit very briefly, a couple of weeks ago, and I talked to Justin Sampson, who you, you might know mm. quite well. And, you know, he's sold TV rights and, and commercial rights all over Asia for rugby for, for 20, 30 years. And he was saying the market there is so big. You look at the population of Indonesia, you look at the commercial uh, prowess of Japan and China and the, just the number of players there and even Pakistan – and the the numbers dwarf those in the the, the Anglo type uh, corners of the world, and yet the Rugby World Cup audience is still heavily dominated by the viewers from the home nations and Australasia and South Africa. What is it going to take to to, to make that breakthrough? Because the prize is huge. I think we kind of had similar conversations at various parts of the globe. So it's always been, you know, a USA ever going to wake up and the, the sleeping giant stuff that, that I'm not ever sure if they were a giant. But but then what's happened in North America, Pacific Island, and now we've got Asia. Um, I think they they are the, that that top league is really in, improving in quality. I think they've they've invested a lot in that, and that's going to be. Um, one of the major reasons that they're going to do well. They've got a good infrastructure in Japan. They've got large numbers that play the game. And I think if they go well, um, they've got an Olympics next year as well in seven aside, which will mean two things. They get automatic qualification, but it also means that Asia then will get another slot as a result. So there'll be two the male... The can invest money, can't they, if it's an Olympic sport as well? Yeah, they can. And, and so you're going to get men's and women's sevens that are going to be in a 12-team tournament, and there's going to be two Asian teams in there. Therefore, their chances of meddling for one of those, considering Japan in the last Olympic Games beat New Zealand in the first group game, and you know, so that started to show that there's a there's change there. Um, that that over the next twelve months, it's massively important for Asia. And you're absolutely right; it's an emerging market. But for my mind, out of those three, the Pacific, America, and Asia, this is the one that's got the most chance of succeeding in the next couple of years. Well, I agree with that because you look at America, and you've got the huge difficulties of East and West Coast competitions mm. which cost hundreds of thousands of dollars just to play mm. because you've got fly squads here there and everywhere and you've already got very very professional established entrenched major sports NBA NFL you know NHL uh, NASCAR uh, go- you know golf there are so many entrenched sports fighting for that dollar rugby is always going to struggle hugely yeah. whereas in this this area of the world Relatively, you know, football is still ubiquitous and it's which is a global game, but you don't have second and third sports that are as, as established in the national psyche. So the the the, the gate is relatively open. Yeah, I think that's a bit. Uh, that's a that's a great um, a great reason why things will go well. I mean, when you do look at the USA, 
if if rugby had even two percent of the sports market and TV market in the US, it would dwarf what the, the the viewers are in Europe. So there's opportunity there, but it's such a fragmented landscape in America. They've got different franchises and owners for who's got the rights for sevens, for fifteens, for international fifteens, for pro league, for an international sevens if league. Ten percent in Indonesia, you'd have yeah. a much bigger. Uh, yeah, yeah, you would much yeah. bigger uh, viewing. Uh, figures than you would for Six Nations. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, there's opportunity everywhere in the world game, but I just think Asia probably have got this better structured and formulated than anybody else. And bearing in mind, I was told by 2025, four out of five of all the um, uh, adults, 18-year-olds, will be coming from that that part of the globe. Wow. That's a fairly damning. No, no, it's not. It's a fairly telling statistic. Yeah, not abso- damning. Absolutely. You want to know about opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've been in Hong Kong and worked in some of the high schools there, where they're introducing rugby into the primary schools. So it's on. It's you know that it's happening. And of course, uh, just as a final note about this, you know, the, the the lack of women's sport that has been not just here that also applies over there, and you know, f- uh, women's rugby has got a better start. Um, than than most games when it's trying to catch up. Football, as I say, dominates everything. But the, when it comes to second or third sports, national sports for girls, the you know the, that's that is even more wide open. Yeah, to- uh, totally agree. I think sevens will be a conduit because it's, it's a home games and sevens is slightly easier to start up with smaller numbers. But ultimately, it's just going to benefit the game in Asia. These what's happening in the World Cup and then next year in Tokyo. And of course, all this requires. The uh, seventy odd year olds, white, stale, and pale, to get out of the way, doesn't it? Which is not going to be easy, if you ask me. Yeah. Anyway, look, going back to Ireland, look, Josh Schmidt's final month as head coach, his legacy has been tremendous. What he's done there has been tremendous. But if you look at Ireland's World Cup record, this is and this is making a big assumption that they don't go deep into this tournament, mm. and there, there are good reasons for thinking that they might not as well. Mm. But if that were to be the case, and Ireland did not make it past the quarterfinal, that would be for them another World Cup where they've gone in as potential outside chances of winning the whole lot and just gone completely. Um, how will that leave his legacy? Well, I think I think he's obviously it's been well recorded. What a brilliant job he's done over the last few years, and he has respect across 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 the whole the whole of the country and the and the rugby public um he's also been part of the process to have a feeder system through the provinces to provide for the national team and that's been that's that's the blueprint everybody looks at what Ireland are doing there and, and it's it's better than probably any other program as far as filtering those players Apart given from them the all blacks probably maybe and maybe even not with the all blacks when you speak to some super rugby head coaches there's a bit of a disconnect between all blacks and super rugby whereas with the regions you can see the amount of games that these boys play it really does it is player centered so there's lots of positive stuff below the surface and they've had some amazing results however we all know that as coaches, you get you get you, you always get decided upon how well you've done on the results that you've given, and if they don't get past the quarterfinals, then absolutely right to say that you know his his reputation and what he's done isn't going to be as as uh, sparkling as perhaps we thought a few weeks ago. Saying that, 
two bonus point wins. They are guaranteed a quarter final against New Zealand or South Africa, two favourites for the World Cup. And if they beat one of those in the quarter final, their tails will be up. Mm-hmm. And and so that is a one-off game that will probably project them. In my opinion, they win that, they're into the final. Um, so Joe Schmidt knows that. And he's, he's a very savvy operator. He's going to have a plan around the New Zealand and South African game. And whoever they side they tip into um, they're going to give it a, they're going to give it a go with the proviso that their halfbacks have got to be on form and of course um, it's not uh, so long ago that they've recorded victories over both those sides you know that might count for something it might not but certainly in the psyche of the players mm. it will at least be something it's not like going into a game never having beaten an opponent and then thinking in the last 20 minutes oh it's going to happen again so that you do have that I suppose what, what about what about Scotland you make Japan favourites for the game I think I think it's still very even yeah, I th- I think you know if we're Scotland, you know we're, we're recording this as Scotland are playing Samoa and look like they're in control of that game. They're going to need to get they get maximum points for the, the remaining of their games. That includes against Japan. They're only going to get to fifteen points. Um, Japan get ma- maximum points in their next game against Samoa. They'll be at fourteen before they play that game. So two bonus points for Japan will not only get them the quarterfinals, it will probably get them top of the group. Um, in fact, it will get them top of the group because they'll be equal with Ireland and then it will be head-to-head. Head-to-head yeah. um, so, so they'll win the group if they get two bonus points there. Um, Scotland, I think you know that they are very well coached. I think they went in a little bit undercooked with those two Georgian games, and um, they played a bit of catch-up rugby against Ireland, and they just they couldn't. They just, things fell apart slowly for them. Hamish Watson injury didn't help. Greg Laidlaw wasn't firing, and Ali Price came in and did well, but he's also now injured. They, their player base isn't as big as everybody else. Um, I think they. I think they will beat Japan. I don't know whether it will be enough for them to get through. Time now to talk about Wales. Uh, exciting win, 29-25 over Australia. It's a huge win for Wales off the back of a few uh, difficult weeks. But we all know that Warren Gatland, if anything, uh, he is a master of getting the timing of his charges right. Why don't we speak to the former Wales and British Irish Lions number eight, Scott Quinnell, former teammate of mine, about this. Hello, Scott. Good morning, Moro. I'm yes, all what, right. How are you? What a win. <laughs> what a win. Michael, Michael Checker's not very happy about this. Have you any sympathy with I him? Don't, I don't care. <laughs> I really don't care. This is one of those he doesn't want to talk about. I'm not going to talk about him. Why, why should we bother? Why should we bother? Well, we're only no, saying, ben, ben, ben and I were just saying that he was looking at Hooper stayed on, actually. He could easily have been a yellow, if not a red card, for what he yeah. did to Dan Bigger. Oh, no, it could. You know, it, it, it was late. It, it was high. It was to the shoulder. You know, but, you know I, I, I was just again. I, I was watching Scotland uh, uh, Samoa earlier, and uh, I was just looking. Well, I, I was just feeling back to '99 with my bruised body as it is now. I don't think uh, you know anybody was on the pitch uh, 20 years ago uh, as uh, as it was. But times have changed, so we, we, we you've got to move forward and you, you have a look at that. You, I wouldn't have been on the field half the time because I used to lead with the elbow because mm-hmm. it, 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 it hurt a lot less than being hit in the. Uh, 
in the chest and uh, you know uh, players now have got to react to that and uh, I, th- I think the referees are, uh, are doing uh, a good job you're not going to catch all of them you're not going to catch uh, everyone so that's when the panel comes in um, you know but, but what we want to do is see consistency through that and uh, you know I, I don't see a I, I think the penalty was about right uh, when, you, when you look at the, the, the stage of the game um, you know any higher than yeah it could possibly be been a straight red and I think that's the narrow point of where we are at the moment with the law. The one of the things that impressed me about the Welsh win was the game management, you know, taking the drop goals as a statement to start with and then when it was on offer and not much else was around and then keeping the penalties ticking over. In this age of when it's absolutely almost, uh, you know, de rigueur to go for the corner and try and get your seven points and so on, I think it just showed uh, a maturity and the fact that people quite often underestimate what scoreboard pressure does to teams. Absolutely, totally. I, I, I've been an uh, advocate for keeping the scoreboard uh, ticking over for, for many years. We used to do when we, when we were playing, and that was the, that, that was the, the norm uh, when, when we were playing. Uh, and then, obviously, uh, when bonus point system came in, I think that totally changed the way that uh, players thought of uh, the way that the, the game uh, went. But you, you know, you win World Cups by winning Test matches, keeping that pressure on the scoreboard and, and, and taking the drop goal. Uh, we've seen that in many uh, uh, World Cups. Well, when World Cups come round, the drop goal comes back into vogue uh, because uh, because it does keep that pressure. On the scoreboard, and I thought Dan Bigger started brilliantly well because that's all you want to do. Uh, you know, when we won that turnover, I thought the back row for Wales were magnificent uh, yesterday. Uh, when they got over the ball and they, they got through, we won that back. Take the three points, settle yourself down, and say, right, guys, we're in the game. Hey, Scott, Ben Ryan here. Hope you're well. Hi, ben. Um, Very good, thank you. Just looking at kind of moving outside of the forwards, um, the performances of, of Gareth Davies and Thomas Williams as well, I thought, on uh, the weekend oh. were just um, breathtakingly good. Would you, yeah. would you have him up there as, as perhaps the, the inform halfback in the world at the moment? Yeah, I think Gareth Davis, I think Thomas Williams adds, adds to that uh, because Gareth gives you so much in that first 60, 65 minutes that, you know, he almost runs himself to a standstill. Uh, he, he almost had two, two interceptions yesterday. The first one, he comes out of the line, he, ta- he attacks the ball um, and almost you, you wonder why people are actually passing because he does come out of the line so quick. <laughs> You know, it's almost too quick before they pick their head up to look where the ball and the target is, is, is going to be. Um, I, thought they, I thought they were brilliant. And you add to that as well, what Dan Bigger brought, that, the defensive tackle uh, where he did get concussed. Um, you know, the, the technique uh, was, was totally wrong, mm. but saved Wales, you know, five to possibly seven points. He goes off. And then all of a sudden, Reese Patchell comes on and just takes up the mantle. You know, he defends particularly well. Uh, so you look at half-back and you look at the partnerships you've got there. One thing Warren's been doing over the last uh, two or three years is building strength and depth. And that's uh, because of that. And you put Hadley Parks, who's played with one arm, uh, basically. He goes up for that, uh, that, that ball. Uh, you know, he, he scores in the corner. George Knopf is coming in, making more uh, uh, work for, for himself and going looking for the ball, which is wonderful to see. Um, and, uh, you know, the likes of John, John Davis uh, with his left foot who can take you uh, out of pressure. And for me, one of the underrated guys, you know, you have Josh Adams, who, who's he's, uh, he's, he's taken to international rugby like a, like a, a deck to water. He, he's, he's powerful. He's not the biggest man in the world, but boy, is he powerful. And when he gets that ball, he makes good 
good decisions. He doesn't, he doesn't get bundled in the touch uh, four or five times a game. He, he'll come inside, he'll put his body on line to, to take that ball uh, back. And, you know, uh, what do you say about uh, Liam Williams? Uh, uh, just just uh, one, one, of the, one of the finest and the fierest uh, players, uh, if that's a word, uh, uh, you know, in, in the world. So, uh, brilliant uh, for Wales. Uh, they, they, the good thing is they've got lots to work on. Uh, you know, for the, the, the Australia show the quality that they have come back into the game, and uh, over the years Wales have lost that type of game when it's got back to, to a couple of points, four points. They've gone on to lose that. The confidence they got now, and the confidence of winning those fourteen games after unbeaten, uh, is paying dividends. Just another word on uh, well, what can you say about Alan Wynne Jones? You know, the oh. most capitalised player of all time. Uh, I've got it down here. He made 23 tackles. I think that's been revised now. I think he made 25 it's been credited to. Uh, what's, what's he like as a person? What's he like to work with? Um, well, I was unfortunate enough. I've never actually worked with him, but I, I, I've been around the Welsh team for, uh, for, for many, many years. And, uh, you know, the, the authority that, uh, that he brings, the confidence that he brings, uh, he's a little bit like Martin Johnson, where the, the fact that uh, he leads from the front, he, he, he's always uh, putting in big performances. Uh, and uh, that's on the training pitch, that's on the, um, that's on the, the rugby field. Uh, you know, when he talks, people listen. And when he doesn't talk, people look at him to say something, you know, and uh, that's, that's the type of man he is. For me, guys, uh, he's one of the best players ever to put that jersey on for Wales. Um, and I'm not talking about 18-minute performances, uh, but it, it, it's the mean, uh, you know, the, the, the work rate that he puts in, uh, the fact that uh, when uh, maybe uh, Wales have conceded a try, he's the first people people look to when they score a try, he's the first people go, people go uh, to hug. Uh, George North was on the end of a big kiss from him yesterday. You know, I think uh, three million people would want to be on the, 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 the receiver of a big kiss of Alwyn Jones uh, yesterday. Uh, because that's that's the demeanour of the man, and not only that, he's the nicest man in the world. When you have a look at what he does off the field, the interviews that he gives uh, off the field, win, lose or draw, he's always the guy that will stand up and, and front up. And uh, you know, he's uh, not only a brilliant rugby player but a great ambassador for Wales. Just a final question, Scott. Uh, I've said that England, if possible, would want to avoid Wales, not not just because of the way Wales are playing, but the Six Nations element, the familiarity, you know, brings the game right down to a level, whereas against Australia, they don't have that. Would it be the same, or do, 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 do Wales not really care who comes through uh, in what order from the uh, England pool? No, you, you know, I, I, I think as well, I think you're quite right, I think England are in good form, I think England are playing well, uh, with probably, Probably, uh, we uh, probably want to miss England in, in the next round, and you know, we'll, do we get to get in the, the semi-final? Uh, but we're going to meet at some stage, you know. The, hopefully, uh, we're, we're going to meet at some stage. Um, so whether that's quarter-final, semi-final, it's difficult. It's difficult to say. The one thing that uh, the, the, the the Welsh boys have done, uh, they try particularly hard. They they've uh, they, they they worked hard on and off the field together. Um, and you know, playing through those uh, warm-up games, people sort of say to said to me, you know, why are we playing England twice? Why are we playing Ireland twice? For exactly that 
scenario on uh, on, on Sunday morning because when uh, push comes to shove, uh, they didn't show all their cards in those four games. Uh, the kicker game was a lot better. They held up their sleeve going into the into the World Cup. Uh, so um, you know the, the exciting thing is uh, you know Scotland are bouncing back uh, uh, today. Um, you know, England uh, playing well, uh, and as well, <laughs> France playing well. John, uh, we have to leave it there, but uh, it's always great to speak to you. Look after you, yourself, my friend. Pleasure. Always love to speak to you guys. Go well. Take care. Bye-bye. Ben, uh, Uruguay, they were another side to pick up. Uh, I, I don't know how much of a shock it was. It beat Fiji, but the Fijians, you know, had uh, three days off after their opening round defeat to Australia. Russia had to play two games in a short space of time. Um, is this just the way it goes and that the second tier gets screwed or yes. because well, because whatever you do with this schedule some people are going to get shortchanged in terms of preparation time yeah I don't know if there's a magic bullet really to solve this um, so that it, it doesn't have these short turnarounds and, and at least the second tier teams or I hate using that word but the t- tier twos aren't getting the short turnarounds for the big tier one games that it's, they're playing each other on it yeah. often um, with the exception that Japan have got the best rest periods than anybody else in this world. Well, they're hosts, that's yeah, why. Yeah, don't blame them, really. <laughs> it's kind of, it's another reason why I think we're, we're thinking they're going to go go get out of their group. Um, yeah, I spoke to John McKee, the, the Fiji head coach, last week after the Uruguay loss, and he was really um, down about it. You know, he, he, he st- I won't repeat what he said, but everything contrived really for them, and they, they got everything wrong in every aspect, and they were they were hugely disappointed because they really felt they could come out of the out of this group. It's um, you know, still get a feeling with them though that there is a game, there's a, there's a big game in them. So, hundred percent, Wales that Wales game, um, they'll they'll. They'll play against Georgia. They'll get. They'll. I'm sure they'll get a good win against Georgia, um, and then they're going to that Wales game, knowing that a a win will get them automatically qualified for the next World Cup, and that's 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 a good thing because that didn't happen last World Cup. And B, they want to finish on a high. It doesn't matter if they don't get out of the group now for them. If they can, if they can knock over Wales like in 2007. Then, um, then I think they can they can say that this campaign's had lots and lots of positives, but it it was disappointing that unfortunately it just all totally unravelled. I've seen that once or twice um, when I've been coaching when the team collectively just you just can't drag them back up. Well, whilst the rugby has been making the headlines, unfortunately, so has some of the officiating, um, with some justification, not in other cases. But World Rugby took the unusual step of issuing a statement last week condemning the officiating around the first round of games. It said, following the usual review of matches, the match officials team recognised that performances over the opening weekend of Rugby World Cup 2019 were not consistently of the standards set by World Rugby and themselves. But World Rugby is confident of the high standards of officiating Moving forward, well, talk about throwing people under the bus. I wonder what our next guest, the former international referee, Jonathan Kaplan, feels about that statement. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, Brian. Not too bad. What What do you think? It's an unusual step to to, to make that criticism. It was non-specific, but still, um, I don't think I'd have been very happy if I was a, an official. What, 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 what do you think? Well, I'd... First of all, I'd hazard a guess that they were broached on the topic. I don't think it was a unilateral decision just to uh, put out a statement. Um, the fact of the matter is that, that it may have been a, you know, bad enough to, to put that statement out. It is unprecedented. I mean, we've seen 
then put out random statements when uh, there's been a furore about a decision. Um, for example, in the case of uh, Craig Jaber of Scotland, Australia. But we haven't seen you know, the other come out until this. So whilst it is, is unusual, um, I, I thought perhaps that it was a, an attempt by World Rugby to show that they were aligned with public, public opinion, public perception, and that they were addressing concerns that had obviously been brought up um, in the media and you know, around the, the rugby world. Uh, well, you've got the um, interesting, if not amusing, situation at the moment of having two Southern Hemisphere coaches uh, on different sides of the argument. Michael Checker, very frustrated, as he always is, about anything that doesn't go his way, particularly with a penalty award uh, against uh, Samuel Karevi for the leading with a form on Reese Patchell. I mean, he seems to have forgotten that Michael Hooper stayed on the field when he possibly shouldn't have done. But then Steve Hansen from New Zealand is be calling for the critics to lay off the referees. Uh, but um, New Zealand, you could say, got the favourable decisions against the Springboks. But away from the high tackles, and that's what's causing the most difficulty. But indeed, that has done all the way through. People are talking about the offsides and the breakdown laws. Is there anything that can be done to police these better? Or is it simply a case of, you know, human beings as they are, they see things in different ways? Well, there'll always be two sides to the argument because until there is a, an attempt to overhaul the, uh, the whole way of officiating, we're, we're working around a little bits and pieces of laws, the fringes of the law. Um, as you well know, Brian, not all laws that are written in the law book are actually applied. Yes. So, for example, um, the, uh, the law about the definition of a ruck, what constitutes a ruck, and then the... the the resultant sanction, which is a penalty for collapsing a ruck, that never gets blown. You never see a penalty for that, yet it's written in the same ink as every other law. And I think managers and referees willingly and knowingly opt out of those type of uh, situations. Uh, these, the discussions uh, that happen amongst referees are about refining what, uh, what expectations are from uh, players, administrators, and teams. And so I like You've mentioned about Cheka and the, the Karevi incident. And, you know, he's obviously a more vocal coach. Hansen has likely, like you correctly said, come to the fore. And, uh, you know, he's, he's had his say, uh, sometimes defending referees and, and other times not. So, you know, for me, I, I, until there is a different way of doing it. You know, they've got four TMOs. You would have thought after 15-odd years of of using a TMO, that the understanding that uh, technology is here to stay is, I mean, that is abundantly clear. But how to refine that uh, has not been well done. And I think they're still trying to understand domain and which way the flow of conversation goes between a, a match official, sorry, an on-field match official and the TMO. I think a lot of the frustration around uh, the tackles that have taken place are the is re- related to the disconnect between um, the TMOs and and referees. And you know, well, like you said, they they're, they're uh, you know they're, they're confident that moving forward things will change. Well, the next game after that statement was uh, you know Samoa Russia, and there were two clear and obvious red cards in that game, which weren't given. I'm not sure about what what happened in the sightings. Um, 
you know, but it doesn't really inspire confidence. Hey, hey, Jonathan Benron here. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased you mentioned the collapsing uh, the rucks, uh, something I've been banging on about for the last few years. But I wonder whether, right, you know, I, when I'm talking about some of the stuff that's going on, um, I don't point the finger at the referee. I'm looking at perhaps system. And I wonder how much of this stuff has slowly seeped in from the top, you know, and, or a lack of direction that's what from world rugby around application of law um, and that that disconnect you talked about between TMOs and um, and the referees actually is there's a, there's perhaps a disconnect between world rugby and the officials um, well potentially it's world rugby I mean I think it goes all the way down to I mean I've, I've been part of um, systems where we've had different managers so at international level uh, let's say uh, Paddy was Paddy O'Brien used to be my manager before that Steve Griffiths and you know at Sanzar level there was a different manager let's say Lyndon Bray whoever it was doesn't matter and then in, at local level in South Africa it's like Fred Berg and, and Andre Watson and in all cases the managers because of the I don't want to say the flexibility of the law but because of the fact that laws were malleable and they could decide which ones were important and which ones not each manager had his own bugbear each one had his own uh, point of focus and yes they were driven by general norms uh, filtering through from the top at, at World Rugby I think it was RB at that stage and it is open it's open and, and, and the fact of the matter is like ben, I don't think that the referee pillar is well enough integrated into high performance, and I don't feel referees get enough information. I think they do preparation, but they don't get enough information, and that's where you get, uh, you know, like Brian's point about uh, teams getting rubber the green, and because perhaps preparation wasn't... I don't blame... Sometimes the referee's had a bad game. Sometimes he's made a bad decision. But for me, it goes much deeper than that. It goes... It, it starts off at selection, and who's doing the selection, and what type of profile has been appointed to the selection process, and then and then secondly it goes to the, the then then what happens? What what culture have you implemented amongst the referees, and and how are you coaching them? What are you doing to better them? I mean we all know there's a matrix in place for the World Cup. I, I don't. I mean I could be wrong. Uh, potentially I am wrong, but I don't. I don't remember. I was in four World Cups. I don't remember a referee being taken off a game because he's in that matrix. And then you ask, so what remedial action has taken place? Well, very little. I mean, uh, he, can, he, he does the usual, um, you know, post-match review, gets criticised, or perhaps he doesn't, gets awarded for a decision which is controversial, who knows? Uh, and then what happens? And what happens is he, he just carry, he rests the next game. I haven't seen someone taken off. Because, and it's the same as players, like you uh, as coach of Fiji, you wouldn't, you wouldn't just drop a player because he had an off afternoon. You try and inspire him for the next opportunity so that he could show you what he's made of. Yeah. And so similarly, the referee managers would want to get the best out of their asset group as well. Yeah. Jonathan, one of the things I think, we're going to have to leave it there uh, here after this because unfortunately we're going to run out of time, but one of the things that in my experience with referees, they are far too bothered about being popular with coaches and, uh, and national teams or, or, or club teams or whichever sphere they're in. They're very keen to be the player's friend. And to me, um, it would chime better with the public if they simply said, no, we're in charge. You sort out your game because this is what we're going to do. What will be consistent or as far as we can, but you've got to adapt to this. We're not going to adapt to you. 
Um, I think in some cases, I mean, it's, it's something I prided myself on that I knew who my friends were before I ran onto the field. <laughs> and by and large, it didn't involve anyone on the field. Uh, but but I, I take your point, and it's well made. And I think that is one of the the criteria that I mentioned. I mean, it's, it may have passed you by, but when you choose a referee, he cannot be just somebody who previously played the game. He cannot be somebody who is fit-looking and has a a good facial profile. He can't be somebody who is a good ambassador off the field and is able to uh, communicate effectively uh, with high-ranking people. He has to be that person who is resolute enough to be able to make unpopular decisions and and make sure that accuracy is paramount. And but, but I think, Brian, like I said to you earlier, I think it goes much further than that because I think it's an underfunded arm of rugby and I think the coaching is not as good as it could be. Well, they're going to have to do something about that because if they, do, if they, do, they don't get this right, then it sabotages everything else. It's a very short-term vision if you think you can play without referees. But we've got to leave it there, unfortunately. I hope uh, we could possibly come back to you and speak to you in the, in the later stages. It's been great to speak to you, Jonathan. Yeah, you're welcome. Welcome, and uh, thanks for having me on your show, uh, Ben and Brian. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ben, interesting what he says, isn't it? You know, and and, and we have seen the funding. um, You know, the RFU under pressure for various reasons. We've seen bits and pieces go. This is not an area where you can afford to be... uh, you can afford to scrape, is it? Because it's so fundamental. Yeah, you, well, you, I don't think I need to add too much more from what you said. If they're not there, then we've got no game. And and if you're not developing them, then but, no but quite often, better. I mean, but but quite often, people. Well, everyone says this. Yes, without referee, we don't have a game. But when it comes down to it, they seem to play around the edges. I mean, I really do believe that that that, that, it, that it is as simple as that. And 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 that should be remembered at all times mm. when you're dealing with referees that they get far. Uh, less well paid than professional players, even the ones who are pro, and the ones who aren't pro, gets you know get enough stick already, without uh, anyone adding to it. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I think um, he was absolutely right um, in talking about that. Then Jonathan, that he needs more resource coming into referees, both through coach education and general support, and also then improving the frameworks around selection. And how those how those referees um, then get their future games that you don't just give them them all. It's not. I mean, you wouldn't want as a player to know. Well, you, you know, we all probably would that you got you got the next five games. Doesn't really matter what you what you do. That's no good. That's not going to improve performance collectively. Yeah. And if that's what's happening with the officials, then then that's that's doesn't sound like that's the right thing to do. Um, I think it's much like um, any high performance when things don't quite work out. It's not one big thing. It's a series of things. And Jonathan's already mentioned two or three small things there they all add to that altitude of the referees plane not being high enough to to where they want to be I've worked with referees managers like Paddy O'Brien I've been impressed by the the amount of work he does with in this on the seventh circuit with them Um, but I do also feel that his hands are probably tied by world rugby and although Jonathan said that the the managers get they'll have a bugbear on something that they'll perhaps then um, push their officials towards spending more time around. I don't believe that happens anymore. I think at World Rugby they get told this is how things are going to be officiated and those managers are hamstrung to a large extent onto what they can enforce. I think it's much easier for them to, like, to, to, 
to negate some laws, say they don't exist, um, like the like the ruck and the breakdown and collapsing rucks and coming off your feet. Um, I think those are much harder to enforce. And World Rugby at the moment, their stance is they're happier to just ignore those. Well, of course, we've got England on maximum points with two wins from two. But as far as I can see, they've played nowhere near what I would consider to be a starting 15. Do you think that's likely to change with their first very major test against Argentina, uh, which is coming up on Saturday morning? Yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, they have now got a run of five very, very hard games if they go all the way into the final. And, you know, they haven't managed yet to play five big games like this to the level, um, consistent level. Uh, I thought they'd been great the last two games. I think they've managed to give most players in the squad a good run. Um, I still... I still think that they'll end up in the bat line going to Farrell, to Alangi at 10 and 12. Um, I think the top four defences in the world are Ireland, Wales, um, New Zealand and Scotland or and England. So the other three, I think they'll put so much pressure on that it will be harder to get to Alangi into the game at 13 and playing him at 12 um, with Farrell at 10, I think will be the pragmatic way that England will go. And I, and I think they should go, whether that happens in the French game or um, even into the quarterfinals. But um, yeah, two tough games now, Brian. Argentina, I know they haven't shown too much, but they're a tough side to play. They're a tough side to play, but I think they're a limited side. They've got a limited number of points in them in a game. Yeah, they're out. They're out if they lose. Yes. So they know that. So that that is going to, you know, they have nothing to lose there. They have lost, had this, the worst winning, losing run they've had in the history of, of Argentinian rugby. But it's been against New Zealand, South Africa, Australia. It's been the top teams. And they are used to that. They are, they are they're, they're game ready around the breakdown against those top teams. And I think they're going to cause the ball to be slower for England. Um, and England are going to need to think of ways to construct quicker, quicker ball. Uh, and I just, don't, I just don't think they're going to go into the night softly. I think they're going to, they're going to prove a, re- a really hard test, which actually is what England need right now. Well, Ben, before we go, you are the brains, or you described as the brains, certainly. Uh, <laughs> don't know if you take credit for this. No. <laughs> Behind Rugby X, which is launching in October, I've seen uh, various people, including Lawrence Delalio talking about this we uh, spoken uh, on this show about it before but look explain it to people who are not aware what it is what it's going to be happen why it's happening what they'll get from it yeah it's on october the 29th at the o2 arena in town and you get your tickets uh, at rugbyx.com um and it's international five-a-side indoor rugby for men's and women's so 10-minute games We've literally, the laws are are pretty much under 11 laws. So we've taken away the line out. We've uncontested scrums. We've got no kickoffs to allow just the basic foundations, catch, pass, tackle um, on an indoor arena. So we're really looking forward to it. At the top end, it's going to be high octane international rugby, which is going to really help grow that top end for particularly sevens um, because most of the players are going to be sevens background, supplement their incomes. And then at grassroots... So you've got leading leading players there. Yeah, and we've got the barbarian coming as well which is allowing me to kind of select um, with the barbarians you know gold medalists from Rio we've got Kenyans and tier two and, and, and all of those things are really important and then at the grassroots we've got the opportunity to give a really nice entry into the sport 15 aside is quite complicated to start up the game with the resources and technical aspects and at sevens it's a brilliant startup but it's pretty hard on the old lungs so 
we think that having a short-sided, small indoor version of the game is going to bring more people into the game, and we're doing grassroots projects around that. And and so Lawrence and Lawrence Delalio Foundation is one of the guys involved, and we've got Hugo Monu and, and, and James Haskell involved and various others. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're really excited about it, and it's a long-term project for us, and um, we hope it ticks boxes on either end of the rugby development spectrum. What surface is it played on? Artificial. 4G. Okay, yeah, so 4G. we bought we bought it and then we bring it in. It takes about ten hours to put to, to lay down. That also gives us the opportunity to get a load of um, grassroots teams in to come and come and play and, and get how coached. Big is, how big is the pitch? It's about thirty five meters by fifty five. So what you'll see is an offloading game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like when you play around the edges and you get tackled, but there's a defender, get the offload away. There'll probably be a second man that's going to going to ha- have some traffic around there for the offload. So it's con- constant subs as well. You can change subs every time a try is scored. Um, and we've done lots of trials. We've had England Sevens and Wasps Ladies and Loughborough um, and Ealing Trail Finders have all trialled the games and it's been really really good. Um, you enjoyed it? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's knackering, but not as knackering as <laughs> sevens is. Um, and you can come, you can roll on and roll off. So it's it's a it's a nice mix and a little different to sevens. You can have your front rowers playing in rugby X that you wouldn't be able to have in in seven aside. Um, so it you know we think it's it's got legs. And um, October 29th, come and have a look. Actually, for, for the future, what you're reinforcing is the and we've mentioned this. I've mentioned this in. So many of the podcasts in discussions with you, in articles, basic skills, tackle, catch, pass, absolutely inculcating those whilst having fun. Yeah, that's it, and that's it. And, and, and you know, the, we have to make sure that we keep offering as many options for people to come into the game and enjoy it. And if you're, an, if you're a teenage boy that wants to play rugby, with the you know uh, touch rugby's all right but you don't get to whack someone and um legally and to be able to just unload a bit of a bit of that energy playing a small sided game of rugby under these laws i think is a good thing and it's both for for females and and male game um and we hope it brings in supporters and players from that age groups uh, um that can help to keep continuing to lift up our game well for more information on rugby x check out the show notes from this week's episode but I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's full contact with The Telegraph and Mitsubishi Motors thank you very much to my co-host Ben Ryan and as always to all our guests don't forget we're here every single Monday throughout the World Cup and beyond so stay tuned why not subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode during the Rugby World Cup and beyond and also write a review whilst you're there too but for now it's goodbye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.